I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So where does this story start? It starts in a meeting room. That's inside this big concrete office tower um, next to this huge highway. I'm sitting inside this meeting room, and beside me is my partner, Catherine. Hi there. (laughs) On the table in front of us, there are a couple of pens, still damp from being disinfected. Of course. And... There's also a bank draft, which is worth my entire life savings. Oh. See, AC. Yes. Catherine and I are about to become first-time homeowners. This is a big moment. How do you feel, buddy? I feel great. Uh, It means I can stop thinking about buying property. Right. (laughs) Which is like... Lifelong dream. the best part of like owning property. Yeah, I can like stop worrying about it. And yeah, I feel like... I'm, um, you know, getting a little piece of this dream everyone is obsessed with. Yeah. But now that I'm doing the final bits of paperwork, I'm just like a little surprised by everything that's going on inside the notary's office. Why? What's happening? Okay. I buy things. You know, I, I go, I pay, I get the thing. I leave. And that's what I thought it would be with Elena. I'd show up, we'd sign a few papers, and I'd get the key. Is that not what's happening? It is what's happening. But it feels like some weird societal initiation. What? Like, okay, here's Elena the notary taking us through the paperwork. So what we are going to review shortly is what we call the deed of sale. So the deed of sale is a legal document that actually transfers the ownership from the seller to the purchaser. She's explaining all the legal clauses in the papers that we're signing. I'm very happy she's doing this because I really don't understand (laughs) most of what's in these documents. No. (laughs) But as she's reading off all this intense legal jargon, I get this feeling that I'm participating in a ceremony. Because as she's going through all this paperwork, there's this dramatic tension building. It's all leading to this one moment when Catherine and I sign on the dotted lines and are solemnly declared property owners. This makes it official. Well, congratulations. You're now the owners of your beautiful home. And then Catherine and I exchange a little kiss right there in the notary's office. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, like I now pronounce you man and condo. Weird, right? I mean, I buy stuff every day. It's nothing like this. It's kind of weird. It's, it's, okay. So let's back it up. Like what, what's going on here? Like if you just kind of like look at what, what is kind of being ordained here and the, the laws of the country, the, the laws of, of property for, for the province, for Canada, basically they're saying, I am now the holder of the property's title. Yeah. It's like the ancient British practice of, of British nobility. You know, you, you when you get your title, you you get your land. So you've paid up and now you're 
what, Lord Craig Dessen, first Duke of Condo in Mile End? <laughs> you got to start somewhere. <laughs> but like, look, this is what I'm getting at. Good or bad, right or wrong, in Canada, property ownership is a class marker. And so when you get into the club, the old legal system throws you a cute little ceremony. Where you might not become a duke, but you still get a title. Exactly. And there's no getting out of this ceremony. Like, we did it in the middle of COVID. And we were, like, making offers on houses and signing off on mortgage documents on our iPhones. But when it came to actually buying the property, the notary had us come in and sit in front of her. And exchange your vows. I mean, did you think it was weird right in the moment or only later? Well, at the time, yeah, it felt totally great. But then it's like, after I left the notary's office and the more I thought about it, the weirder the whole thing started to feel. Like, this start, what is the point of this? And my guess is it's to establish beyond any doubt that I am the owner of the property. I'm the title holder. And that makes sense. Property is so valuable that if there was any doubt over who owned what land, capitalist society would crumble in an instant. So once I go through this ceremony in front of the notary, it's clear I own it. But the more I thought about it, the more make-believe or... Do you remember the word truthiness? Yeah, Stephen Colbert. Truthiness is believing something that feels true, even if it isn't supported by fact. <laughs> truthiness. truthiness. The vibe of something being true without it necessarily actually being true. Exactly. Like, I felt the truthiness. You see, I have a question about this ceremony I don't have an answer to. AC... Do you remember public events? Yeah, I have vague memories of something called a concert. Concerts. Concerts. Book launches. Yes. F- fund, fund Fundraisers. Raisers. And, and often <laughs> they would start with a land acknowledgement. And, um, you know, they, they, they normally go something like this. We're based in Montreal, which is unceded Indigenous land. I'd like to take this time to recognize that our publishing offices and bookstores are located on the unceded territory of the Kenegahaga. Located on unceded indigenous land. Unceded. 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 Unceded territory. What's being said is that indigenous people never gave up their right to the land when it was colonized by Europeans. Many parts of Canada are covered by treaties and how those treaties were signed and what happened to those promises. That's a whole other story. But that's not the situation in Montreal. The indigenous people in the area never legally signed away the land here to the Crown, or later on, to Canada. So I wonder if what happened in Atlanta's office when she declared Catherine and I the property owners, can that be true if Montreal is on unceded territory? Can I or any other non-indigenous person call themselves the legitimate and undisputed owner of property here? And is it even ethical to profit from real estate, which in Canada today can mean making a lot of money if the land is unceded? Those are big questions. Even in places where there is a treaty, those are big questions. There's the question of stolen land. And when something is stolen, what do you do? Do you acknowledge it? Do you leave? Do you give it back? How does that work? What exactly are the options here? And how did this happen?
I'm Macy Rowe. And I'm Craig Dessen. This is The Doc Project. Today, we are going to go back in time to trace the ownership of one piece of land in Mile End, a neighborhood in Montreal, asking, whose land is it anyway? I'm going to trace back the land my condo is on, all the way back to its original inhabitants, track who owned it, who used it, and how it changed hands. We're going to dive into what unseated land and stolen land means, and how it comes to be that non-Indigenous Canadians can have deeds to property on unceded territory. And it's all building up to a conversation. I'm going to visit Ganasatage, which is a Ganigahaga community northwest of Montreal, and ask Mohawk Council of Ganasatage Grand Chief Serge Simon what he thinks of me buying land here in Montreal, and what he hopes for his people. We've been around here for 2,000 years, and when we talk about unceded, Unceded means we never surrendered it. We hear about unceded and stolen land all the time. But what, if anything, can someone do about it? Today, Craig is going to try and figure that out for himself and his condo. So, why are we doing all of this? Why trace back bit by bit, rather than just go straight to Mohawk Council of Ganesatage Grand Chief Serge Simon and ask what he thinks. There is a reason. It's because I want to interrogate this whole process. I'm just the latest person in a long line of people who've claimed this piece of land. So I want to follow not just the land, but the money and the power that comes along with having it and losing it, turning over every stone along the way so we'll understand what it means to quote, own the land and what happens to people deprived of owning land. Craig, tell me about the condo. AC, it's beautiful. It's one of those old three-story Montreal apartment buildings where the staircases are on the outside. It's two bedrooms and the top floor, so we get tons of light. And it has real character. It was built in 1910. Plus, it's in Mile End, Catherine Amai's favorite neighborhood. It's close to our favorite coffee shops and bookstores. When you moved in... What did you know about the people who owned it right before you did? I knew it was owned by a woman named Christine. But going back before Christine, what did you know about those people? Nothing, which is where I get to sleuth. Using this thing I've become obsessed with, deeds of sale. So imagine Sam sells a little piece of land to Susan. Then Susan sells the land to Vincent. Then Vincent turns around and sells the land to Natalie. For every one of those transactions, there is a deed of sale which is registered with the province. It's how the government keeps track of who owns the land. And the system generates piles of paperwork, covering real estate transactions going back centuries. Remember a few minutes ago when I met Alana the notary? Yeah. She had access to these deeds. Alana sent me every property transaction she could find for this little plot of land a mile end. What did she send you? She emailed me back 14 deeds of sale, basically scans of older and older pieces of paper with typed, then handwritten information. They say who sold to who, give the address of the property, and you can just go from one to another, back and back. Okay, so let's hear it. So what Alana sent me is kind of a long list of dates and names going back over 50 years. To spice it up, I thought I would include a hit song from the year the land title is from. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. AC, would you do the honors? Would I ever? 
Okay, first up, Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. October 2020, Kath and I buy a condo from Christine. Train, Soul Sister. In 2010, Christine bought the condo from Pierre. Don't Funk With My Heart, Black Eyed Peas. In 2005, Pierre bought the condo from Jean-Francois. Let's do the Black Eyed Peas again. Where is the love? In 2003, Jean-Francois bought the condo from Sophie and Samuel. Work It by Missy Elliott. In 2002, Sophie and Samuel bought the condo from Jose and Landelina. Friday, I'm in love. The Cure. Then, nothing until 1992, when they bought it from another Jose. Planet Rock, Africa Bambada. And this Jose bought it from Salvador, Cosmo, and Mario in 1982. Did my land used to be Little Italy? The answer to that is yes, many Italian immigrants moved here. Got it. Edwin Starr, War. Salvador, Cosmo, and Mario bought it from Raphael in 1970. Strawberry alarm clock, incense, and peppermints. Before that, in 1967, it belonged to Regina and Salomon. So now we're moving back into the era when the neighborhood was home to lots of Jewish immigrants. This is like the Mordecai Richler era of my land. Von Monroe, Riders in the Sky. And in 1949, Regina and Salomon bought it from Sarah and Isaac, who the deed notes is a junk dealer. Oh, we're getting personal. And then? And that's as far as I got. It's only the 1940s. Didn't you say your building was built in 1910? So the deeds should go back to, what, 1910 at least? You're right. And the thing is, is when I got the 1940 deeds, I ran into a problem. Oh, the war. Did the war affect record keeping? No, not exactly. More like around the Second World War, the, the title documents, they start being written in cursive. Oh, Craig. And, and, and take a look at this cursive. Holy yikes. Are these... <laughs> Are these words? Okay, no, I, I can read this. Hold on. Inks, instrument, <laughs> tear, 19... Oh, it's in French. Or is it in French? I can't... Yeah, oh, I can't what, even what tell. What I'm hearing here is is you, like me, can't read cursive. I mean, not this cursive. I know, no problem, because you know who does? Who? My mom. Yeah, mom. Yes, my mom, Heather Harvey. She's a retired teacher and lives in Ottawa. And she used to teach cursive writing to elementary school kids in Montreal. So I gave the deeds to my mom to see if she can help. Oh, my goodness. This is like on gray paper. Just let me get, I'm just getting my magnifying glass. Just a second. So fun fact, 
Um, my mom used to teach a special type of cursive writing that is only used in the old English Montreal Protestant School Board. And she says she can tell where a Montrealer went to school by just looking at their cursive writing style. So if you look at the end of the old Star Trek for William Shatner, who of course is from Montreal, signs his name, you can see he uses a Protestant R. What the fresh heck is a Protestant R? Yeah, let me get back to you on that. So can Mama Heather figure out the deed? Kind of. She was able to transcribe a bunch of the handwritten documents. Okay, uh, Joseph, okay, is a, he's an advocate of Montreal. So my mom and I are making progress. She can decipher the names and the dates. And we discovered that the earliest deed that Alana got us seems to be from the 1920s. But the house was built in 1910, so there's still 10 years of deeds missing here. Yeah. We're at a dead end? Basically, yes. See, when I got to the 1920s, I got stuck. My plan to trace back the history of this property to the moment it became unceded land seemed impossible. But then I got lucky. While digging around a Facebook group about Montreal history, I came across a thesis about property in Montreal in the 1800s. And that led me to Alan Stewart. You want a sound level? Okay, um, I'm just opening up my general file for this with documents. So. In this quest, Alan is like my Yoda, Gandalf, and Dumbledore all rolled into one. Why? Because he's wise and beardy? Because he has a staff? <laughs> He works in academic administration, and he's been writing and studying Montreal history for decades. So was Alan able to find out why the records Alana found stopped in the 1920s? He did. And this is how he did it. The way Alana and Alan researched this property is with something called a cadastral number. A cadastral... Is that you? Someone snoring? (laughs) (laughs) No. A cadastral number is a number referring to a land survey. And that defines the boundary of the property. So, Nancy, I'm going to need you to stay awake for this next part. So, <laughs> I've got this. I'm on this. And in the 1920s, the process of registering deeds changed. The city is growing, and the suburbs have been absorbed by the old part of the city. So the records that were once kept in rural districts are absorbed into Montreal. Allen was able to find the property records held in the property registry office of the old district of Oshilaga Jacques Cartier. And with that, he was able to uncover all the deeds that came before in the 1920s. So, to keep things lively, we're going to set this one to one of the top hits of the 1910s. Let me call you sweetheart by the peerless quartet. Take it away, Allen. In February 1912, it's sold to somebody by the name of Cyril Taifer. September 1911, a building contractor by the name of Zoël Lamoureux buys the property. In March of 1910, uh, he sells it to someone who is a clerk in Montreal. In 1909, the Montreal Investment and Freehold Company formally sells the lot to a notary, Joseph-Henri Olivier. He 
he and his heirs, his uh, sisters, sold it in 1891 to two investors who, uh, less than a year later, uh, sell it again to the Montreal Investment and Freehold Company. And it is that company which does the subdivision. Something to, you would probably not be aware of at this time, that there is a major land boom going on in Montreal. All sorts of farmland is being converted into subdivisions. It's the late 1800s, and we're on farmland. Look at all these cows. You know what they say about cows. What, Craig? They're outstanding in the field. Oh, I'm going to have beef with you now. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so this farmland, this is, this, is, this is my land. That cow is the duke of my land. So this farmland, where my condo is now, was briefly owned by two investors. They bought this land from Robert Stanley Clark Bag. Before this sale, Bag was rich. And it's about to make him a lot richer. It's 1891, and Montreal is on the brink of a housing boom. The area where my condo is is the fastest growing part of Montreal. In 1891, there were 3,500 inhabitants in my area. 20 years later, that's going to be 37,000. A decade earlier, the Canadian Pacific Railway Company was founded in the city. The Lachine Canal, which links the Great Lakes to the ocean, is packed with factories. It's the most concentrated industrial area in Canada. A canal which, I should add, the grandson of Stanley Bag gets a contract from the British to build. Electric lights have begun to illuminate Montreal streets. And electric trams, too, are appearing on the streets. So his timing is perfect to develop 250 acres of land he owns along the St. Lawrence Boulevard to build Montreal's early suburb. A plan is devised to build a subdivision that's going to appeal to tradespeople and white-collar workers. Bag sells his land. Here's Alan again. So they make $156,000 from the uh, sale of this land in November 1891. This is a massive fortune. But let's keep moving back. Robert Stanley Clark Bag and his sisters inherit the property from his father, Stanley Clark Bag who inherited it from his parents, Stanley Bag and Marianne Clark, who got it from Marianne Clark's father, John Clark, who was a butcher. And where did John Clark get the land from? We've now passed through at least 19 landowners. The last three, all generations from the same family. Clark got the land from some stonemasons. And the masons likely got the land from the Grey Nuns, an order of, well, nuns. <laughs> and we're saying around now the Grey Nun era we're moving back before the British invaded Quebec, and the French government is running the colony. On we go. Before the nuns, there's the Frères Charon, who get the land from some farmers, and before that, a bailiff. I'll let Alan take it from here. The bailiff of Montreal is granted the land, his farm in 1683. would have been virgin land that had not been shaped by Europeans. So there you have it, AC. The first person to buy the land my apartment sits on in what is now my land is a bailiff, back in 1683. So is this it? Is this the moment where we get to the land becoming unseated? It is, and it isn't. We'll get to that. I want to pause and talk about the way we saw not just land, but money change hands through all these people. The lesson we have so far is that property, land, 
it builds fortunes. To have property is to have money. And to have money is to have power. Political power if you want it. Let's look at what Stanley Clark Bagg was able to accomplish because of the wealth he made from real estate. He was able to support a series of big charities in Montreal at the time. Like the English Workingmen's Benefit Society, the Young Men's Christian Association, the Protestant House of Industry and Refuge. All these organizations linked to the English Montreal Protestant community. No doubt people who were not Protestant benefited from these organizations, but the power structures behind them that were making the decisions were entrenched in Anglo-Protestant Montreal. So money for him and his family means money for his Anglo clan. And the reverse would be true. People who are denied this land, the indigenous people in the area, can't pass wealth made off of it onto their children and don't build fortunes that entrench a certain way of life or help out others in their community. The Anglo came here, but they were coming from a new, uh, a new epoch. This is Gerald, and he's going to come up again later in the story, but he explains this really well, so I'm just going to let him do it here. It was the start of the industrial uh, uh, era, so you couldn't develop a free economy without having the right to sell properties. To borrow money, you have to give uh, uh, some uh, guarantees which come from the property of the land. Part of why land is so valuable is you can borrow money against it. Private property is central to Canada's economic system. The way you must become rich when you have a lot of land is to divide the land into smaller properties and then you can sell piece by piece. This is a way to create money. If you own a forest, you, you can, uh, you, it doesn't mean you're rich. But if you can own a forest, you have the right to cut in little piece and sell to people, then you start to, to have money. Right. For a long time, the only way to even get a vote was to be a man who owned land. Land means money and power. And with that in mind, I want to keep moving forward into the past through the history of this condo. All right. We'll be back with that in just a minute. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So we left off with the bailiff in 1683. The French have colonized what is now known as Quebec. Who gave the bailiff rights to the land? Good question. There's a whole other layer to this story we haven't talked about. I want you to listen to the rest of Alan's sentence. The bailiff of Montreal is granted the land, his farm in 1683, would have been virgin land that had not been shaped by Europeans until they, the land was granted by the Sulpicians. Computer, enhance. Granted by the Sulpicians. <laughs> I'm so glad we bought that computer. Such a good computer. Worth its weight in computers. AC, I haven't broached the topic of the seniorial system. Oh boy. You see, a lot of these people we're talking about, like the bailiffs, the nuns, the masons, and about half the time the Bag family owned the land, they didn't own the land like we do today. In fact, 
they couldn't. Their claim to the land fell under a totally different property system. It was a feudal-inspired property system called the seigneurial system. Imagine you're part of the French government. It's the 1600s. Imagine you're in Paris and maybe wearing a, a big wig. Oh, you're definitely wearing a big wig. Way on the other side of the ocean, you have a colony. It's called New France. Now, it's really nothing like France. There are no roads, no churches, no courts. So, how do you turn it into a New France? Well, you're going to create a property system that will make it possible to colonize the area. And that property system is called the seigneurial system. And how it works was that in the 1600s, the French crown granted the power to settle New France to a royal company. Then they divided New France into sections, which they then granted to seigneurs, who would grant the land to settlers. Mm, love a good top-heavy system of management. And those seigneurs would collect fees from the settlers. Then the seigneurs would use the money to build roads, churches, and a justice system. So all those people we spoke about in the mid-19th century, they didn't really own the land. They were more like renters, and there was no alternative. However, it wasn't like renting because you could build on the land and sell it for more than you bought it for. But you were always paying dues to the seigneur. So who were the seigneurs of Montreal that the bailiff would have been paying his perpetual rent to? AC, I would like to introduce you to the Sulpician priests. The Sulpician... Priests, yes. A Catholic order of priests that was founded in France back in the 1600s. And for about 200 years, they were nothing less than the effective landlords of Montreal. They were the seigneurs. And the Sulpician order still exists. What's left of them inhabit the Saint-Sulpice Seminary in Old Montreal, an old stone building next to the Notre Dame Cathedral. Many of them are old, like in their 90s. And they have a phone number. So I gave them a call. Welcome. You have reached the Seminary of Sensitive of Montreal. You can reach a person by dialing his extension now. I got to know this voicemail pretty well because I called them a few times until I got through to a receptionist. Oui, bonjour. Mon nom est Craig. Je suis un journaliste avec CBC. The receptionist would transfer me to various people who neither picked up the phone nor returned my call when I left a voicemail message. So what exactly did you want to ask these priests? I mean, they are elderly, but nobody who would have been your great, 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 great landlord is still alive. At first, I was just trying to find out their piece of the puzzle in the story of this land. But then I wondered, how did their connection with the land shape their history during the 190 years or so that they had the grant? What did it do for them? But basically, I had one big question. Did they make a lot of money doing this? And even if they're not the seigneurs anymore, did they acquire vast amounts of wealth that they're still riding on from back when they were? Yeah, basically. So could you get through to anybody? Eventually, with the help of the receptionist, I'm able to get through to somebody. So she tells me to call in an hour. And when I call, then I finally get through to somebody. I said I was doing a documentary on the history of Montreal real estate and asked if they would grant me an interview. 
he responded by saying they were a bunch of elderly guys in the middle of a pandemic and there was no way they would entertain visitors. I then asked about a telephone interview. He declined that. Then I asked if I could at least visit the archives, which in the past was run by archivists and researchers could go and check it out. He said no. I asked if I could speak to an archivist. He said they were on leave. I asked when they were coming back. He told me they aren't. Then he hung up the phone. Huh. So I asked Alan, my Yoda of Montreal history, what he thought was going on. Trying to get an interview with the, the guys at the, the seminary, <laughs> the Saints of the Seminary, but yeah. they, they seem awfully, um, like, secretive. Well, they have long been quite secretive about this, but also just recently they let go of all their ar- archival personnel. This is a whole other story, but you have a, um, a, the sufficient archives are probably, well, they're undoubtedly one of the richest sources of information on the history of Montreal. And right now the archives are totally closed uh, and inaccessible. And in fact, right now are not being managed by a professional archivist. After I got off the phone of Alan, I did some Googling and found out that the Sulpicians did lay off their archivists. And in fact, it was a news story in Quebec last summer. Tous les employés qui occupaient des archives et des biens patrimoniaux des prêtres de Saint-Sulpice ont été congédiés en bloc sans préavis. Qu'est-ce qui s'est passé? And it was reported that the archivists were escorted out by security. Whoa. In the news coverage, there was a guy named Gerard McNichols Tetrault who was giving interviews. Gerard, who we met earlier. You must become rich when you have a lot of land, is to divide the land into smaller properties. He's an urban planner and does architecture conservation. He used to work for the Sulpicians, doing conservation work on their buildings. It was very different when I started than when I finished. I, I started actually in uh, the year 2001. They were around 75 and 85 year old. But at the end, they were 90 year old. <laughs> The stuff he told me about what goes on inside the seminary is fascinating. The way the Sulpicians live day to day hasn't changed for centuries. Like, for example, in the seminary, who has what key to what door is organized by a strict set of rules that hasn't changed in hundreds of years. But Gerald liked working with them. They had a very good culture. They were very, very well-educated people, very nice people. They, they were always welcoming. You know, when you go to your grandparents or something like that and people welcome you, they receive you well. They, they, if they invite you for lunch, you have a very nice table. People are very uh, uh, good, um, good manners, you know, polite, good manners. You know what this sounds like? What? Old money. The traditions and the politeness and the rituals, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's it. The Sulpicians, the way they live, their lasting wealth, shows how owning property shapes a story or a history. So what could he tell you about their history as the seigneurs of Montreal? So he says when they ran the seigneurie of Montreal, they collected money, but they had to put it towards colonization. They're responsible for developing Montreal. Like they created the Collège de Montréal, that brought in top teachers from France that helped shape the intellectual values of the province. It was a place where French Catholic ideas could dominate. The school trained many important Quebec politicians, and Louis Riel, the Métis leader, also went there. They also had a role in developing the Lachine Canal, and the factories harnessing the power of the water launched the Industrial Revolution in Canada. 
the Sulpicians contributed to the overall colonial wealth of the entire nation. It's the same thing we saw with the Bag family a century later for Anglo-Protestant Montreal. So what happened to them, the Sulpicians? Well, remember how when the British invaded New France, they dismantled the seigneurial system? The Sulpicians held the title to the land. So if anyone wanted out of the perpetual renting, they had to pay the Sulpicians a huge heap of cash. And man, did the Sulpicians make a fortune. So are they still rich? Are they still benefiting from that money? This brings up another reason why land is valuable. It's usually a great long-term investment. And when you sell your land, you get stuck with cash, which you need to put into other investments, which are riskier. The Sulpicians had piles of cash to invest, and man, did they ever invest. They invested in banks and railroads. They bought municipal bonds and put tons of it into the stock market, which then crashed in 1929. And when the crash happened, they lost, uh, they lost their money. They were close to uh, uh, lose all their properties, everything they had. They were very, very poor. And um, they, 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 they could hardly even eat. You know, that, that, was, that was a big trouble for their whole community. What did they do next? Well, they never really recovered. Once out of the real estate game, they became religious teachers, which, as you might imagine, isn't as lucrative as owning the island of Montreal. And now those Sulpicians who spent their career in Quebec aren't up to much. They, they, are, they are retired priests, so that nobody consult them. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's uh, very, very sad. So what we see here is that the Sulpicians lost their wealth connected to losing this land. But... We know that they weren't the first people that this happened to because of what we're working our way back to. We know where this is going. In our quest, we are trying to find the moment that the land became unseated. We are trying to go from the piece of property you just bought to the moment Europeans wrench control of the land from Indigenous people. Are are we there? Is this that moment? We're really close. The Sulpicians got the land grant for the island of Montreal in 1663. They got the land from the Société de Notre-Dame, a French crown company that founded the French colony in Montreal in 1642. The reason for them being there was to convert indigenous people to Catholicism. The full name of the organization often is cut out of the history texts. It's Société de Notre-Dame de Montréal pour la conversion des sauvages de la Nouvelle-France which translates as the Notre Dame Society of Montreal for the Conversion of Savages of New France. Wow, it is all there in the name. Yeah, and, you know, I should say the meaning of words, you know, changes over 500 years, and sauvage at the time in French meant forest dweller. It came to be a racist epithet over time. But the meaning of the word conversion, it hasn't changed. The society got the land from the Company of a Hundred Associates, which is basically a company that was given a trade monopoly over New France. And whom did the Company of a Hundred Associates get the land from? I need a little harpsichord music here. The King of France. So this is it then. How did the King of France get it? AC with a ceremony. Oh, we have come full circle here. A ceremony that was recognized by a part of international law at the time called the Doctrine of Discovery. Yeah, I mean, my question here is, 
we have all heard some version of the European sailor showing up on a beach and planting a flag. But what is actually involved here? I did a lot of research to try and understand how this happened. And it's covered in a book called Ceremonies of Possession in Europe's Conquest of the New World by Patricia Seed. She writes about how the colonization by European powers the world over would begin with a ceremony. Those could involve planting flags or crosses, and they could be quite intricate. Holy oil, special clothes, candles, or, get this, words said in front of a notary. Okay, now we've come full circle. It makes sense. A notary is a witness to a legal act. The idea is that they bring credibility to this weird magic of claiming land. They do their rituals, and then poof, the land is theirs. And this is how the story of colonization in Quebec begins in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence River on July 24th, 1534. It's also the start of the story of how I came to be able to buy this two-bedroom condo on the third floor of a building on the island of Montreal. On that day, Jacques Cartier planted a 10-meter-high cross on the Gaspé Peninsula in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. According to the standards of European colonization at the time, this was all it took to carry out the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine was based on a series of papal decrees which established a spiritual, political, and legal justification for colonization and seizure of land not inhabited by Christians. The cross is where it starts. After the land is claimed, then the claim needs to be backed up with military might and finding people to live there, colonization. But colonial rule started with a ceremony. This was a ceremony that brought the crown here. The thing about a ceremony, it only means something if you've decided it means something. And the French crown decided this one meant something. But the indigenous community, they didn't have the same political history with that ceremony, the same laws or, I mean, even the same belief system from which those laws were given power. Exactly. We're venturing into philosophy here, but this whole quest rests on this moment of political relativism. What something means to one group being pushed onto another group and whether that can be legitimate. So how does something like this still stand up in our legal system? Well, AC, I'm glad you asked because I actually asked the Canadian government this question. I wrote the Ministry of Justice, the federal government, and I basically asked them, what's the legal basis of Canada's claim to the territory it inhabits? And Ian McLeod of Public Affairs and Issues Management of the Department of Justice wrote me back, Canada's establishment occurred progressively and differently in different parts of the country. So it only works because it was built up over time, right? Like that moment that Cartier arrived and and planted the cross, um, that's not the moment that's being identified. It's it's the you, you own it because you live there and you continue to live there. It, yeah. You know, it's making me think of like squatters, like squatters rights. Where if you just claim something that's not yours long enough, it becomes yours? No, this, this, in fact, that's exactly what it is. So I, I talked to this lawyer, Peter Hutchins, who's argued multiple land claims cases in front of the Supreme Court. And I basically asked him the same question. And he said 
Canada's claim of sovereignty uh, to unceded land in Montreal is based on a legal doctrine called de facto. What is de facto? He says de facto recognizes a status quo. It is what it is. You have to live with it. So basically, Canada belongs to Canada because Canada belongs to Canada. Truthiness. Truthiness. Right? It comes down to power. It's mm-hmm. who who says it's a fact. Whoever well, has the, the money and power to make it a fact. Yeah, exactly. So where do we go now? To Ganesatage. Ganesatage is home to the Ganyagahaga Nation, often referred to as Mohawk. It's found just west of Montreal along the Ottawa River. You've heard of Ganesatage before. It is next to Oka, as in the Oka Crisis. And I'll talk about the history of that in a minute. The Ganyagahaga Nation is part of the Iroquois Confederacy, which is a nation whose territory includes what we call Southern Quebec, Eastern Ontario, Upstate New York, and Vermont. I'm going to talk to Mohawk Council of Ganesatage Grand Chief Serge Simon. Sure, I have some questions for myself. Can I call myself a legitimate owner of property in Montreal? How does he see me being implicit if I am a landowner? And what does he think I should do? But more importantly, his voice, the voice of his people, is what's been pushed out of all this history we've been walking through. So I drive up to meet him. I meet him outside the community's COVID-19 operation area. And I try and act like I know what I'm doing. I'm not sure if he's just going to laugh at my questions. Also, I'm not as prepared as I wish I'd been. Like I forgot to bring my tobacco, as my CBC training tells me to do. But Mohawk Council of Ganesatage Grand Chief Serge Simon welcomes me. To get his levels, I ask him what he had for breakfast. Um, nothing, actually. <laughs> I really haven't had a meal all day and uh, just been working and working and working. So uh, eventually I'll get to a burger or something. We start talking and I asked him about who owns the land. And right off the bat, he corrects me, pointing out that the European understanding of land ownership is nothing like that of the Ganyagahaga nation. The Mohawks had the tendency... They had this saying about, you can't own the land. Uh, the land doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the future generations. And we have, a, we have an obligation to make sure that the future generations enjoy uh, what's on the land, the same as we did. The whites, it was, you know, we'll square it off. This is mine. I asked him how he understands his claim to the land compared to mine. Our title is rooted in our inherent uh, occupation um, of the land. So during our history, we never gave the land because we could not give something that technically did not belong to us. It belonged to the future generations of the Mohawk people. So we were only holding it for them. It's an artificial title that you bought. And you say, okay, this piece from here to there and from there to here, uh, this is my land, this is yours. And uh, you didn't really have an inherent occupation of that land the way we did. We said we were going to share. But again, in many instances, we didn't just walk away. We were forced out. 
you look at what happened in our area here, the Sulpician priests and how they handled it. The roots of the Oka crisis date back to 1717, when King Louis XV of France granted the land to set up a mission for indigenous residents. The Sulpicians say the land was granted to them. But to indigenous people, this was of course their land. But the seminary decided to grant itself full ownership instead. Here's how Chief Simon explains it. They were given the responsibility for our care. Uh, it was clear that their responsibilities was the Christianization, education, and teaching of modern farming techniques to the Mohawks here. There were land set aside for hunting and that we were going to be left in peace. But that's not what happened. Instead, the Sulpicians started to sell the land to white settlers. Repeated efforts by the Ganyagahaga to clarify their claim to the area were met with defeat. In 1868, the Sulpicians went so far as to change the name of the area to Oka. And the Sulpicians even had a Ganyagahaga leader put in jail for cutting down a tree on their territory. They became extraordinarily rich with uh, the stolen lands that were promised to us. So they displaced us, they threw us into poverty, they beat us, they put us in jail. While this didn't happen in Montreal, it does illustrate a history of broken promises when it comes to land, colonization, and indigenous people. So while there's an unresolved land claim on Oka, what about the island of Montreal? Is there a land claim there? I spoke to a few people, and I can't find any open land claim on the island of Montreal. A representative from the Mohawk Council, who the elected government, said they have no claims open. Though Chief Simon said that doesn't mean there might not be one in the future. And a representative from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is the traditional body of government that predates the Indian Act, said, quote, We don't do land claims because Montreal is already ours. And it should be Canada that has to prove Montreal is theirs. The fact is, Indigenous people were living on the island of Montreal or using it as hunting grounds before the French claimed it. There is a history of Indigenous occupation of Montreal, an occupation that the property system in Montreal doesn't acknowledge. So I ask him if I can call myself a landowner. So the land tenure, again, it's a tricky thing. Your title can be manipulated. Mine can't. The historical occupation of my people is well-rooted. It's there. You cannot erase it. You can't ignore it. So is he saying it's best if you leave? Not, not quite. It's not about me personally. I think it's a matter of us and your leadership. Our government to your government. These are aspects we have to discuss with the Crown. The artificial title holders, I think, once educated, will realize uh, what it is we mean. And you have to recognize the Aboriginal title does exist. It is there. It cannot be extinguished. The court said so. And we're not there to displace you. We're not going to be as cruel to your people as you were to mine. But you have to understand, eventually, uh, we will be able to work within the context of Aboriginal title with your people. So there you have it. According to him, my title to this land isn't real. But he's not saying I have to leave. He brings it back to this idea of Aboriginal title. Aboriginal title is not something to fear. It's, some, it's a certain context that we can all work 
towards peace and finally uh, equitable justice for both societies because the way things turned out there's nothing just about it Craig, you're in your apartment right now, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you feel being in it now? I don't know. Has telling this story changed how you feel about the place? Yeah, I I would say it has. You know, I I think about the process of signing the deed in Alana's office. You're signing, you know, page after page of dense legal documents. And there was the historical research that Alana did into the history of the property. And... It's all to create this fact, de facto, Mm. that Catherine and I own this condo. But it's not the full story, because it writes out another story, the story of how Canada was colonized. There's something else that Mohawk Council of Ganesatage Grand Chief Serge Simon said in our conversation. It's a matter of educating people. Like you as an artificial title holder, you have no idea about the history of that land, how it wound up the way it did. Uh, you know, the Mohawks uh, that were in the area uh, that are still here. And how, uh, how history evolved into you being there. This feels like something I can do. Keep learning the history, try and share what I learn, and pay attention to the present realities of the Ganyagahaga. Because this story is as much about the present as it is the past. Trying to reverse the effects of colonization. I don't think they'll ever be able to do it completely. But we can save our basic fundamental principles uh, to to the fullest and flourish and progress and evolve. Maybe in part of the way the Creator intended us to. But... Two societies are there. Neither one is going anywhere. The only solution is to find that peace and that recognition that the Aboriginal title is there. We never surrendered it. So unceded territory just means we never gave it up. That doc was produced by Craig Dessen with me, AC Rowe. It was edited by Jennifer Warren and Julia Poggle. Thanks to Steve Bonspiel, editor of the Eastern Door newspaper in Ganawage, for working with us and advising on this doc. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Tanera McLean, Sherry Okeke, Andrew Friesen, Kent Hoffman, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.